0: The, an- the Android phone was the ca- The Android platform is the cause of the Butlerian
1: Jihad. Let's just go ahead and call it. <laughs> my, my Mintad is on the Android platform. <laughs> <it>? <laughs> he's not working very well. Yeah, I had like, to download a bunch of drivers to get my Mintad to work.
0: <laughs> Thufur Hawaii, He's uh, he's Apple. Totally. But that that one played by Polka Dot Man over with the Harkonnens.
1: Uh, it's an android right there. Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. Hark- the Harkonnens are definitely an android family. They're definitely an android family. <laughs> they got the cracked screen. They never turn off. The screen never turns off. It's always on. <laughs> and Listen, you, you know who you're listening to, right? I hope you do. We're the Masters of Divinity. I'm your moderator, and Chuck is your father, Chuck.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we're are here. We, I-
0: are are should we are we are for this
1: episode are we are we mod-dib? <laughs> well, <laughs> more, mod dib what mod dib sure <laughs> in this episode we're going to be talking about the 1984 classic David Lynch film Dune uh and it's 2000 2000- it's really a shame they
0: never it's really a shame they never made another
1: Dune movie no, I mean they, they made that miniseries that was superior. oh, that's right, that sci-fi
0: mini series. But I really uh, feel like I really feel like they could have made like a really good like if they got like a really like that guy who directed like Arrival or something like if he did, if he did a version
1: maybe of Doom, like, I think that would be pretty good. Oh, something a little more understated, perhaps. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit more focus on performances, maybe, maybe maybe get some stars in there, like some real celebs, you know, like uh, like Dave Bautista. Well, yeah and like I mean uh Aquaman
0: right he's he's Jason Momoa he's <laughs> okay. you know local right. boy
1: you triggered me you triggered me um <laughs> Jason Momoa without his beard unfair <laughs> that he is still hot without it oh i know that's number 1 number 2 i did feel like a child who saw his father without a beard for the first time <laughs> 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 when i saw him to the you like, know yeah a bit uncanny. No,
0: go ahead. Say, say, no, say what you're going to say. say. I was just going to say it's just a bit uncanny.
1: Like, yeah. Yeah. That's it.
0: I, I, this is that, and, and that fact that he shaves between when he's on Kaladin yeah. and when he's on um, Arrakis, I think is another great, like one of the great things about the way this movie was directed in that we don't, you, you don't, they don't tell you why he shaves. There's no conversation about it, right. but as a bearded person myself. Who has worked in the medical profession as a chaplain i know that i was required to shave in order for my n95 mask to per, to to create a proper seal over my face right yeah and so it stands to reason that duncan idaho shaved so that the fremen mask would seal properly and he wouldn't lose moisture
1: oh yeah yeah i never thought about that that's
0: interesting that's
1: great little point. things like that yeah so uh, we are talking about the latest iteration of Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve, who we will, for now, from here on out, prefer refer to as Dennis Villanova.
0: <laughs> Dennis Villanova. Is, that's like a Duncan Idaho-esque name. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why he liked Duncan Idaho. It's like, yeah, he's kind of like my name, Dennis Villanova.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so... But I, I do want to start out um, before I watched this one. You you watched it on the big screen, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It was the first movie that I went to a movie theater for since Rise of Skywalker, Whew. and yeah, uh, it was. I've been waiting for it, man. This was, I, say- I knew I knew that this would be the movie
1: I'd return to theaters for. That's that's pretty sick. Uh, did you see it on, on IMAX or did you just watch it like on a regular screen?
0: Regular screen. I went to my local theater. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, I watched it on my television. <laughs> on on my desk. Thank you, Chuck. I watched it.
0: You're welcome. I watched <laughs> it on my television like two days later. So. Yeah.
1: And it, it did feel like I was missing something. Um, like I wasn't getting the full experience. But that's okay. I mean, I, I got to experience it for what it is. None of that cinema crap. Um, <laughs> none of that sound and you know visuals. Blah, 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 blah. Just give me the story. It's all I care about. Yeah, gosh.
0: Because yeah, <laughs> what, what JP is referring to here, listeners, is to a tweet, right?
1: Yeah, or review. Like I think it was like a. Were- no, no, no. It was from a review. It was a. It was a tweet of a screenshot from a review.
0: Yeah, of somebody basically saying that like they were calling BS on on uh, the Denny's Grand Slam for wanting um, that's that's my joke about his name Didn't Denny? This is Denny's Grand <laughs> Slam.
1: Um, I don't know what you. It is. <laughs>
0: Should we call the episode this
1: <laughs> Denny's Grand um, Slam? That, that's a good subheading, I think. Yeah.
0: Um, But uh, it was a guy basically saying, like, entitled and whatever for expecting I have to go to the theater. I want to see it for what it is, rather than
1: all the riffraff that cinema provides. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is so. Like, just just the idea that, like, by
1: watching it on uh, on a small screen, I'm cutting out all the bullshit. Like, I don't care about any of that. It's like, wow, this guy has like. There, there really is no difference between, like, a YouTube ad and, like, Citizen Kane to this guy. Like, interesting. Um, but, no, I, I watched it on, on, on TV. I did feel like I was missing out on a bigger party. But I still loved it. I had a great time. I, I was still, to a degree, overwhelmed. I did watch it with headphones. so That helped. Um. yeah
0: I, I, I want to say I wish that I had watched on a headphones when I watched it at home because yeah. the sound right like I don't have a surround sound system on my TV and so like it was like yeah. quiet, run loud, run loud, quiet, quiet I hate right. playing so, the like, game yeah so it's like just constantly you know so like a good third of the movie has a little like volume thing up in the upper corner
1: <laughs> um, but yes yeah, so I watched it that way but before I watched it uh, I had a little <laughs> dune day I watched the 1984 David Lynch version, which I had actually, I seen parts of like, I don't know if people who listened to us were around when the sci-fi channel was the sci-fi channel and not Sifi, um, <laughs> but they used to play this movie a lot than the 1984 Dune, a lot. Like it was, yeah, a, it's it was kinda, a big
0: deal. It's kind of amazing that I've never seen it.
1: Me too. Like I, always, I would always just kind of like tune in for a little bit and like tune out because it was every one of those movies they would always show like during holidays and they'd be like, it's in widescreen format because Sci-Fi Channel used to do that too. They did that with Star Wars for a while. Where they showed Star Wars in widescreen. Yeah. Pretty cool. Um, but they did that with Dune and I would always like try to watch it because it, it was kind of like Star Wars. Then I'd be like, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea what the heck is going on. This is not Star Wars. <laughs> uh, and uh, it would just be background noise or whatever. But I got to say, uh, since then, everything I'd, I'd heard about it was that it's like an, an atrocity, a disaster, a horrible, horrible failure of an adaptation. And I guess they're not completely wrong. Um, it's not a great movie. <laughs> like, it's not, <laughs> it's not a very good film. There are definitely a lot of bad things. Going on in the movie. Um, I haven't really done much research into like what the production was like. Apparently, the production was a nightmare. David Lynch directed it. Uh, this definitely not his no, kind of thing he, at all.
0: He did not direct it. JP, what are you talking about? Alan Smithy directed Dune.
1: From what I understand, that is that is a, that is one cut of the movie, right? There, oh, is, there it? is an Alan Smithy cut.
0: Okay. For um, listeners who don't know about the legend of Alan Smithy,
1: he's one of the worst Alan, directors
0: of all time. He's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Alan Smithy is a pseudonym that directors use when they want to distance themselves from a project that has been that has been negatively impacted by the studio. Yeah.
1: Um, so apparently, David, I, I, like I said, I don't really know what the drama is behind uh, the David Lynch tune, but I, I watched it, and I gotta say, Chuck, I I enjoyed the hell out of it. <laughs> like I had, I, I don't you know like what that it Toto was. Toto soundtrack? Huh? You like that Toto soundtrack? <laughs> That's right. Brian, to, Brian Eno from Toto, right? Is that no, 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 no. No, no. Toto and Brian Eno. I don't know who these people are. I know who Toto is. Reigns in Africa. I don't know who Brian Eno is. Brian Eno It's it's alright. It's okay. <laughs> okay. But I had I had a hell of a time. It was fun watching it. Maybe it's just the mood I was in. I don't know. But like it felt like watching an old episode of Star Trek. You know, like if, if like the people who made Star Trek the TOS version decided to make a dune like this is what they would make i think <laughs> like so I, I kind of appreciate it. like it and maybe because like i just came off of like a halloween marathon where i watched a bunch of cheesy movies uh if you have shutter check out sledgehammer. <laughs> sledgehammer and things sledgehammer um anyway movies shot on vhs video my new my new obsession <laughs> Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm pretty much coming down off of like watching cheesy movies all month in October. So maybe that's what that was affecting. It. Like I, I'm just like su- I'm just like overly charmed by what I'm seeing. However, the back half of that movie just falls apart completely. It's like they they ran out of road, and they're like, oh no, what do we do? Tell as right. much of the story as possible. We got to get to the end. <laughs> and so right, it, it is like the entire book, but all of a sudden like 800 pages becomes like two minutes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what, that's, what is it? I I read that what the, 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 the Lynch version runs, what, like 84 minutes or something.
1: Oh, that was a little bit longer. Um, Maybe it's
0: 90 something. No, that's what it is. It's like 93 minutes or something, but like, but something like 60 something of those minutes is what is covered in the first half of the novel, which is what,
1: the first half and a little bit yeah. more. It goes a little bit further. And what's right. funny is, like, as I was watching Dune, by the time they get to the part where Paul Atreides and his mom approach the freemen, I'm like, I bet you anything this is where Denis Villanova's Dune is going to end. I bet you anything. Mm-hmm. Um And it, it kind of was. Um, yep. <laughs> but, no, I enjoyed the hell of it. It's so much fun. You know, if, if you're curious, if you want to watch just like A fun cheesy movie, the cheesy version of this. I I I recommend it. Check it out. It's on HBO Max.
0: I need to watch it because the ending of the movie is hilariously different from the book. Because I read the synopsis and the book ends like on the weirdest note. Have you ever read Dune?
1: I haven't. Uh, I've, I've I've gotten ten pages into it over the three years that I've owned it. So
0: okay, it is it has become it has become maybe my favorite book. Um, I
1: named through that just that my, my, my brain has been turned into hamburger meat from me from watching 20 Marvel films and spending <laughs> hours on Twitter.
0: There you go. But so. it, it, uh, it ends like it just, ends like it's it's just got a weird anticlimactic ending. Um, and so the, what I've, the, the plot synopsis stuff that I've read from the Lynch version of Dune's ending, I actually think is kind of like, Hey, it's kind of, di- it's different, right? It gives something yeah. right. But I just have to know, man. Would it work since Toto did the soundtrack? Would it work to like have rains to have Africa playing over the rain falling on the desert?
1: I don't see why not. I, I mean, I'm willing to bet that's why Toto did the music. Like, <laughs> wait, it's a desert and it rains at the end.
0: Dun, 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 dun,
1: dun, dun, maybe they'll, and like, he's really sheepish about it. Like, he just wants them to ask him instead. Like, he wants it to occur to other people. He doesn't want to be forward about it. He's like, maybe they'll yeah. ask me. Maybe they'll ask me. They never <laughs> ask me. There's a lot of, there's a lot of. That things going on in this set. I don't think they're going to ask
0: me. <coughs> <laughs> it's even funnier when you think about the trajectory that, like, so you've got Alejandro's Alejandro Jodorowsky's infamous attempt at making Dune, right? Yeah, yeah. which supposed to be a six hour long a,
1: movie or something like
0: 14 hour <laughs> long movie far. was his plan a 14 hour long movie with a soundtrack by Pink Floyd yeah, yeah.
1: and Mick Jagger. I think someone else. they fade.
0: Yeah. Um, that movie, of course, it's its legacy is that it gave us alien because that's how Dan O'Bannon met, um, met, uh, H.R. Giger and, oh, right. okay. and O'Bannon introduced, uh, uh, Ridley Scott to him. And Ridley Scott was like, this is the guy. Um, and some of the stuff they designed was reappropriated for alien. So, um, we would not have had 1979's alien without Joe Dune, which is a fascinating little hmm. piece of pop culture trivia, but Right. So but to think about it, you've got like these you got like Pink Floyd doing the soundtrack. You've got like all these like rock artists that are supposed to be in the movie. Salvador Dali was supposed to be in the movie. I mean, just yeah. crazy things that were going on. And then you get Toto
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Sting um, instead of Mick Jagger. <laughs> Sting.
0: I forget that I Sting in his little like
1: wing bikini thing. Can I just say that? Um, like uh, I want to say that Fade is a cool ass name.
0: Oh, Fade Raltha.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm probably gonna name my son Fade. Fade. Want to make that declaration here? Isn't little, it? Fa- isn't, fade it isn't isn't
0: Isn't it more like Fayed?
1: I mean, fade. they say they, they say it like Fade and and oh, the 1984 they? version, but I, I'm starting to think they say a lot of names wrong in that movie. <laughs> After yeah. watching this new one, <laughs>
0: um, yeah, like Kwisatz Haderach, yeah, um, but. The other, But the other thing, the other legacy about the 84 Dune is I'm almost positive that Patrick Stewart's role as Gurney Halleck in it is what got him Jean-Luc Picard.
1: Probably. He's awesome in it, by the way. And I, uh, and I, and I love the cast. Like Kyle McLaughlin's as Paul Atreides, very good. Um,
0: <laughs> does not look like a 15-year-old, but very good.
1: No, he's very good. Uh, uh, like you said, um, um, Patrick Stewart as Gurney. Um, okay, DeStrobel's and he's great. There's, there's there's a lot of great actors in that movie. Um, but I I, I but I, yeah, I just I was charmed by it. I had a fun time. I loved it. Um, and for exactly the two hours between watching Dune 1984 and Dune 2020 2020 retroactively 2021, um, I became like a Dune like fanboy. Because once I started watching the new Dune, I was like, well, "Well, where's Fade? He's not in this movie. Where's Fade? Hey, how where's
0: where's Princess Irulan's <laughs> summary?
1: Yeah, uh, oh, they're not going to show the navigator, the Navigator's Guild, like
0: oh, the Space Guild. Yeah, they don't yeah, have they, that. that. Yeah, they don't. I, I was actually, I was actually surprised. I was like, oh, they're because they're not going to have those in this. Oh, I guess the sequel. They're going to say
1: that. And like, hey, how come look no look one's explaining weird. what a mintat is? So, like, I definitely, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I was I was acting as if I would grown up watching Dune or, like, reading Dune.
0: <laughs>
1: Dude,
0: <laughs> watching it with my wife, I had to resist the urge to pause it and be like, okay, so there's this thing called the Butlerian Jihad. and <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, fast forward to 2021. We had this new Dune. New Dune. Um,
0: like, new Coke. New Dune. <laughs> yeah.
1: And it's very good. I, I think it's very good. But I agree with a lot of criticisms. I have criticisms. But on the whole, I enjoyed it. I gave it four stars on my letterbox. So that means something.
0: Your letterbox review was fantastic because I saw the one you did for 84 Dune, and you like went on and on about how like fun it was and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I was like, I really wonder what you're gonna think about the new one. And then I saw you put the new one And your, your review is a single word, dude.
1: <laughs> um because I was I was overwhelmed by the time it ended. Um and that's really all I could I can muster, and I just felt that it was appropriate appropriate. So Let's start this. Let's start this. Uh, let's kick it off, Chuck. I want to know what your thoughts are because you're you're much more of a Dune head than I am.
0: And I'm barely a Dune head. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> so, just what's Dune about? What's Dune, Chuck?
0: Um, By the way, so how you Dune? Doing? <laughs> how you Dune? Oh, that might be the title. <laughs> so Dune. I'm gonna. I'm, i I want to share just a little personal thing about Dune. Okay. So. I've mentioned a few times in this podcast that I had a chance encounter when I was a kid with this sci-fi toy price guide. And so it was just this book full of like toys from like science fiction properties, like all the way up until like Star Wars, um, Return of the Jedi. And I would just pour over this thing and just like looking at all these different, you know, sci-fi properties, things that I had never seen. Cause at this point I was really obsessed with alien, but my mom wouldn't let me see it. So I would just like, and I would just drool over the Kenner alien toy, which is like my dream. My dream collectible yeah. is if someone were to buy me that 18 inch tall, uh, <laughs> uh, Kenner alien action figure from putting 1979, it, putting it out there, but huh? putting it, just out, put it there. out there, putting it out there. Um, but I, uh, I mean, I've wanted it since I was like 11 years old. Um, but anyway, so I'm, uh, so but i remember like seeing all the dune toys in their price guy and i was sort of fascinated by like the sandworm and and all of it and just seemed like such a bewildering interesting thing like i just sort of you know how when you can look at a property you know like there's that phrase like a comedian's comedian or like a writer's writer you know someone that like you know you know what i mean like you're like you like yeah it's not for for normies Yeah, it's not like norm, not for normies. Right? right. Right. Even just looking at like the Dune toys, I could tell that it was on like a different level than other science fiction stuff mm-hmm. that it was like, oh, this is like this is dense. Like whatever this represents is dense. Right. And then I would go to like borders, pour one out. And I would I would I was always fascinated with books, but like I just I don't know, I didn't read when I was a kid all that much. And I would just look at all these sci-fi books and I would want to like be I was just sort of but I see all these Dune books cuz there's like a million of them. And and I remember and I remember seeing Dune and just being so overwhelmed by the size of that novel. Cuz it's like a 900-page novel. Like it's huge. And I just remember thinking like ah, I'm never going to read that. Like I'm just never ever going to read that. But I was just always sort of fascinated by like what it was. Like it just seemed like there's something in this. There's a mystery in this that I want to like yeah. uncover. And so um, fast forward to several years ago, um, I decided it's like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to read Dune. You know, I'd already I mean, by this point, I'd read The Lord of the Rings. That was the first book, by the way, I ever read was The Lord of the Rings. Like not first book I ever read. But like when I decided at like 18 years old, 19 years old, that I was going to be a reader. Like I just I made that decision. I'm like, I'm going to be one of these people who reads. I am going to dedicate myself to reading books and to get over myself and actually commit myself to it. I started with Lord of the Rings and boy, howdy, was that a good start because I don't know, boy howdy, <laughs> but is uh, you know, Tolkien is not the most thrilling writer,
1: right?
0: And going through his dense world, I think helped me to make other books simpler and easier after reading it. But um, that being said, a few years ago, uh, probably twenty sixteen or so, um, 2015, I decided to read Dune, and I couldn't put it down. It was, I found it to be a very readable book for its size, and I was just really, really enamored with the world that. Frank Herbert had created um, just to the to the level of detail that like Tolkien did with his world. But like differently, because Tolkien was just trying to create languages. And so he created all these dense histories and stuff to give ground to the languages he was making up. Herbert wasn't trying to create a language. He was actually just trying to work out, like, how would an alien ecology work? And how would that affect societies of people who have settled onto a different? Like, how would humans adapt to an alien world in terms of religion and all this sort of stuff? So he just created this whole like interesting, you know, story that's built around the way that an ecosystem affects everyone. Um, and and that's so that's that's kind of actually what Dune is about. Is about how tied we are to our ecology and how our ecology affects everything about our societies.
1: Um, say our that's our conditions.
0: Sure. <laughs> but the, but what doing is about is it's set 30,000 years in the future.
1: Right. Um,
0: 10,000 years into the, uh, Padisha, um, Imperium. Um, and it is dealing with, um, the like the big houses of the Imperium, so the Atreides, the Harkonnens, um, the Sardaukar, and then um, all these different groups like like Chom, and then there's the Space Guild, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and dealing with their and it's and it's all about their different politicking and trying to control the state of the galaxy. Humans have settled in the, among the stars. I'm um, on different planets. Earth at this point is kind of like a distant memory. It's sort of like the fan, like the fictional land from which we came. Um, and uh, the other big thing about Dune that's kind of important to know, I think, is that um, computer technology is like deeply, deeply restricted. Um, and that's the result of this whole thing called the Belhirian Jihad, and blah, 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 I won't go into it all. But um, but. Uh, there was a, there was a war against artificial intelligence like 10,000 years before or something. And it, the result was that, um, computers were no longer like really built and instead they trained humans to become like living computers and they call them mentats, um, But the thing is, is that interstellar space travel is still a big deal. You need computers for interstellar space travel. So, um, what they discover in the course of all of this is that on this desert planet, that was a part of like a failed terraforming experiment is this thing grows in the sand called spice and it's a hallucinogen that opens up, um, consciousness and basically allows a human brain to expand itself out and make Matt the vast calculations necessary to make interstellar, like faster than light space travel possible to navigate it. And so the whole society now of the of, of humanity and the Imperium is built around the control of this material called spice, and it only exists and it can only grow on the planet Arrakis, which people also call Dune, because it's just a desert planet, right. and so the whole fate of the the whole fate of the Imperium hinges on who controls that. Um, as we see with the in the movie and also in the book, we're coming in at a time where the Harkonnen the House Harkonnen has been removed from its stewardship of Dune, and um, the Atreides family, um, based on the planet Caladan, has been given control of the planet, and so Duke Leto and his family relocate to Arrakis to or Arrakis, to, um, to begin their work of, you know, distributing the spice, but also trying to handle things differently because the Harkonnens are cruel. Right. Um, so that's and so do, And then on top of that, of course, this whole complicated thing about the potential of a messiah.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's a good that's a, that's a big option. part of the story. Uh, yeah. Uh, spoilers ahead. BTW. Yeah. Um, and that, that's where things get kind of tricky, right? Cause you, you learn there's like actually like a big conspiracy that the Emperor has teamed up with the Harkonnens to actually uh, destroy the Atreides, right?
0: Yeah, the Atreides are becoming more popular throughout the galaxy and
1: uh, the, Imper- the Emperor is
0: feeling threatened by it and so he is partnering with the Harkonnens to set up the Atreides family for failure. Treachery treachery. That's why I I felt when when um when Game of Thrones was starting to wrap up and people were like, "Well, oh, what's going to come next?" I thought, ah, HBO should probably try to adapt Dune." Yeah. As like series like Game of Thrones. I, I thought like, it would I think that was worked. on
1: the table at one point. Like that like Dune has changed hands like so many times. <clears throat> it's gone yeah. through so many different like Oh my gosh, that there's just like a storied history of like people trying to adapt that book. And I, I'm pretty sure right. HBO came across it at least once and even considered it during Game of Thrones' popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it did not happen. And we almost got a Dune movie directed by Peter Berg, who you know, you, you may remember that name from uh, the guy who directed um, uh, Battleship. Oh, that's right. <laughs> It fell in his hands for a little bit. And he almost made it. It, it. it almost took off. But at the at the last minute he lost it. I forgot forgot why. Uh, I don't know. Uh probably an Atreides Harkonnen situation, you know, someone set him up for <laughs> failure.
0: Uh, watch out for that Dennis Villanova, man. He might be
1: uh... <laughs> Um but uh, no, I mean, I actually the more like I I learned about this story, I was like, oh, this is where Game of Thrones comes from. It's really funny how like you can just synthesize like all of these. I mean, Star Wars is the obvious one. You you, if you're a Star Wars nerd, like you know that like Dune had a huge influence on it, right? Yeah, from Tatooine. Beginning. Tatooine
0: is Arrakis. Yeah, of course. The the uh, the 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 uh, the Tuscans are the Fremen.
1: Right, but like all of the, you know warring between houses and stuff. I was like, this is where Game of Thrones yeah. came from. This is, this is all part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, oh, yeah. they're also both kind of drawing from history and stuff and how, you know, these nobles were always fighting with each other and also from our own country. And uh, which I think is some kind of metaphor, I think for oil, right? Is it some kind of, is it, uh, is it maybe, I mean, I got yeah, that. I mean, I got that feeling. I don't know if that's true. Or not.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, sort of like Muslim-esque, Muslim-esque desert people, living in a place where this precious resource that's necessary for travel oh, oh, and commerce is
1: found. I think I just, you know what? You know what's really weird? Arrakis sounds a lot like Iraq.
0: You know, that's it kind of so, does.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> Listen, I don't want to claim death of the author or anything like that, um, but I feel like I'm onto something here. Anyway. Here's
0: what I want to know is, because when I when I read Dune, I always pronounced it Arrakis. Yeah. And I'm wondering if they intentionally... Change the like I mean I could be wrong because I, I would I don't know where the where that's like a, if there's a pronunciation guide But I'd be really fascinated to find out if they intentionally changed the pronunciation to sound more like a rack, right?
1: I don't know but um, right. so let's let's kind of get into uh, Some 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 criticism here. Let's talk about our, our thoughts Um As someone who's sort of like a, 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 a new dune um You know, I, I very much enjoy that like, Huh
0: a Dunette? yeah
1: <laughs> um i was I was getting into the uh the conflict between the houses in the nineteen eighty four version I like that there's such a distinction between the two families like Harkonnens are are super like hedonistic mm-hmm. um and very uh gross with their yeah. large adult son um and then there's like the atreides who are very you know, refined uh very down to earth um And just sort of the struggle between those two and then also, like, the uh, knowing all of these different factions that are in some way in tune with, like, the universe in their own individual way. That's, like, a really important thing to remember because, like, the whole point of Dune is, like, oh, there's going to be a messiah who's going to, like, be able to do all of that. Right. Right? Um and it's like, and the whole the whole idea is like, he, whoever controls the spice, like controls the universe or something, right? Yeah. But, but what they're basically getting is like, one day, like one person, is going to be control of all, all of it all, and there's going to be like one. Right. Like, beater.
0: And that's right, and that's all part of the 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 Bene Gesserit. Yeah. The 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 space witches.
1: I love the um, Bene Gesserit, by the way. They're super cool. Like that. They're getting their own my, show. Huh.
0: They're making a show.
1: On the I heard about yesterday. that. Yeah. like yeah. He, A couple of years ago, I think uh, 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 DV said something about that. that he's gonna yeah. A show. Um, super cool. And so Interpol Atreides, who's our, our main character here, the character who inspired, I mean, from Luke Skywalker to Harry Potter, like yeah. any kind of sci-fi protagonist who may or may not become some sort of chosen one. Right? Mm-hmm. And it, it feels kind of old hat by now. And I feel like there's actually a lot of things here you know, that I feel sort of old hat by now. Like the whole chosen one narrative. It's very Cambellian, this movie, this mythology. Um, does not really sway from that cycle at all. Which I think is probably why uh, Denis Villeneuve probably understated so much. Well, he does something,
0: very in, he does something a bit interesting with, with his movie that's different from the book. So in in the movie, in the 2020 movie, um, Paul overhears the conversation between, you know, the Reverend Mother Hella Moyhem and Jessica about how they've been laying the groundwork for this messiah yeah. figure um, and basically, you know, taking her to task, taking Jessica to task for sort of jumping the line that she should have, she wasn't, she, you know, they were waiting another generation, but she jumped the line to have a
1: son. Um, Which I guess they can control. I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: no, they don't necessarily, well, I mean, they control in the sense that they abort their sons.
1: Oh, oh, I see.
0: Oh, um, yeah, I Yeah, because they, 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 they know the gender Yeah. through, just they're able to, yeah. But, um, but. So it's a big um, deal
1: that Lady Jessica had a boy and it was Paul Atreides with, with the House of Atreides.
0: Right, because she, she she chooses her having a son as a middle finger to the order of the Bene Gesserit. Hmm. Because the plan was that she was supposed to have a daughter. And I think that daughter was supposed to then have a son. So she jumped ahead. But anyway, that whole bit about that whole plot thing that happens and the whole discussion, the fact that Paul hears about it and talks to her about it and her laying it out, the fact that that happens like in the first you know like eighth of the movie is very different than the fact that that's like way later in the book. Is that revealed?
1: Um, Something that's kind of unfolding throughout the narrative, right? Like he's slowly right,
0: right. And so I think that I I would I wouldn't be surprised if if uh, if if Villanova, (laughs) it's so fun to say this, uh, (laughs) that he um, that he put that up front to kind of use that as a way to subvert that this isn't just another like Neo chosen one story that the, the question is how much of this is part of a plan that's been laid out and how much of it is maybe
1: some kind of spiritual reality. And also where's the line
0: between and also how it's screwed up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I feel like, I feel like, you know, he is sort of making a judgment call. I think what's interesting about him is like, he's, he's laying his fingerprints on this movie by sort of calling out the whole Messiah thing being like bullshit. (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, that's,
0: well, that's what Dune Messiah is about. Yeah. Is about why Messiah, like why Messianic figures are are like usually bad, usually a bad idea, right? Um, that a lot of Dune fans don't like the sequel, Dune Messiah, because because Paul really becomes a jerk mm-hmm. in it. Um, but yeah, that's like the, that's the arc. Yeah, so it. it I mean, it, yeah, it's funny that it's funny that you know, it fits that, that, that trope. Right. And like Herbert himself even said, he's like, the first book is, Hey, here's the Messiah. The second book is, and now here's why this is a bad idea. Right. Right. Um, and, and so, um, and it's also telling that, uh, that, 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 that Denny here, um, is, um, that Denny America's Denny's America's diner, uh, is, um, wanting to adapt, like make a trilogy where Dune Messiah would be the
1: right
0: the end of that trilogy so like you can see where he's kind of laying out that that whole thing yeah
1: yeah. well i think what's interesting is that you know timothy chalamet is playing paul atreides he does a really great job by the way um i I think i really liked it because he was very uh good at sort of selling Mm -hmm. the kind of back and forth conflict over what exactly he's learning and what he's hearing and learning about his own destiny you're not really sure if he wants it it, but it's not like it's not super cliche in the sort of reluctant hero kind of way right um it's just that the whole seeing it through most of his eyes in this movie which I thought was interesting um was that there's seems to be more not so much reluctance but like confusion
0: right and it and that hits with the idea he's not ready for it. Right. And that kind of gives the Reverend mother sort of her thing where it's like, well, you jumped the gun. Like we, you know, no one's ready for this. Yeah. You made this decision and no one's ready for it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, Paul is, you know, similar kind of thing, like with Harry Potter, right? Like Harry Potter is put in this situation later on in the series of, you know, in the Potter books of like, you know, this information, a lot of this information about who I am and what's going on would have been really helpful to know a long time ago. Um, yeah. And, but, you know, but they didn't tell him because they wanted to spare him from the burden of having to be this, like, keystone for an entire, like, world. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, you get that with, with Chalamet's depiction of, of, of Paul Atreides, is that for him, it's, yeah, it's like you said, he's not the reluctant hero. He's more of the, he's just a kid.
1: Yeah. Still and, trying to process everything.
0: Right. I mean, like he's, he's already- trying to process the fact that. On top of the fact that, like, why are we here in the
1: first place? He's trying to process that, too.
0: Right. Right. Because he's in the midst of being prepared to be this. You know, he's the he's the heir. He's going to he's going to be the successor to You know, he'll be the Duke someday. So he's just kind of trying to he's at the age where he's starting to learn that stuff. Right. But then, like, you get that great moment with him and Gurney where he's like, look, I'm just not feeling like fighting today. And it's like, well, you don't get that luxury.
1: Yeah. Which, by the way, that scene is almost one to one. Almost one to one with the scene uh, in in the nineteen eighty four Dune, which I thought was interesting, okay. because it seems like both filmmakers, David Lynch and uh, uh, Dennis Villanova, uh, do find it to be pretty important. I guess. Um, well, although, I think there's more happening in the, scene, it's in the Yeah, it's really, it's an important
0: scene in the book. The, the the one thing that one thing we don't get in Dennis Villanova's version is we don't have we don't have Gurney the troubadour. Yeah. Playing is Basilett singing songs. I don't know. Do they do that in the Dune version?
1: No. Or but, apparently, but apparently, from what I understand, uh, there that those scenes exist, but they were cut from the film.
0: That's a disappointment.
1: But th- they're going to put it in. They'll put it back in. They know yeah. There's extended but, cuts and stuff. Yeah, they'll do it.
0: Yeah, no, the studio, of course, the, stu- we should note, right? The, the Warner Brothers was very, like, afraid of this movie.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm... I'm when when it was in production, I think you and I have had plenty of disagreements where we were like I think you were like, Oh dude, it's gonna be a hit. I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't really? know. <laughs> like I we you know Dune, I know Dune enough to know like this is pretty heavy. And I I am shocked, by the way, at the uh reception of this movie that people are like getting into it like i would like you don't you don't get into dune like you, this isn't spider-man right. like this isn't star wars like this I'm is telling dune, you. dude like it's like getting into yeah. a math textbook
0: <laughs> right if we hadn't here's the thing is if we had not had peter jackson's lord of the rings oh, yeah. and if we had not had game of thrones dune would not be
1: successful i think you're right i think you're right yeah and it does kind of remind me of a little bit when Lord of the Rings came out, when someone like this, this voluminous text, everyone was all of a sudden like, just give it to me. Let me, let's, let let's, let's see what, let's see what it's all about. And it rules. Yeah. Um, so I, I am very surprised by that. Um,
0: I will but, say though, what, what I really quit, sorry to interrupt you, but like one thing that, one thing that definitely does surprise me about its popularity is that it's a very expository film.
1: Oh, yes.
0: There's not a whole lot of action
1: so expository that David Lynch put it upon himself to give every single character in his version an inner monologue. <laughs> and a lot of people like say that's a huge detriment to the film. They might be right. They could be right. But I loved the hell out of it because it explained so much for me. <laughs> because if I could, if I could compare Dune 1984 to anything, it's like someone took a Wikipedia article and turned it into a movie. Until it was Star Trek effects.
0: And well, like, you know, so like, this is like coloring- a great
1: jumping-off point for someone wants to get into well, Dune is watch this movie.
0: Well, you know what, the coloring sheets that they gave out to kids for Dune in 1984. No, I didn't know that. They gave they, they had like you could, they, they gave out the theaters I think where it got these coloring sheets to give the kids so they could like color before the movie started, <laughs> and it just explained all the, like the houses and who was who and everything because they like the studio had no faith that people would get this. And That's so funny. The, the thing is though, right? 1984 audiences are very different than 2019 audiences, yeah, right? Yeah. The nerds won, right? our our, our, nerd we live in 2021 the nerds have won and so like we can put up with we can put up with the fact that it's the year 10,000 and the greatest fighter in the universe is named Duncan Idaho and not be (laughs) like this is stupid
1: by the way quick aside not to bring everything to a grind but I found an article from Vulture Mm -hmm. and the title is we need to talk about the name Duncan Idaho
0: yeah I read this article okay
1: um chuck i feel like i could write for vulture you could uh i feel like we could both write for vulture if that's the kind (laughs) of crap they're producing oh Um,
0: dude well i told you they had one they had one calling out dune for um for appropriating middle eastern and north african culture
1: yeah i think that was the cut right because i read that one
0: yeah because there was one it was like because it was about it was basically saying like
1: i think they were trying to explain it
0: yeah, but they were saying that it that that it's ripping off Star Wars and like yes. it's drawing on this long tradition of movies doing this. I'm like, oh my god, no! Like Star Wars is ripping off Dune, <laughs> and Dune, and Dune has its Messiah going through his self discovery in a desert because of Jesus and Muhammad, right? Like these are that's that, it's it, he. It's
1: yeah, just, to say it's cultural it's appropriation is so funny because it's like, yeah, the cultures have literally clashed by now. Like I, I don't understand how can you, it's not appropriate. Like, yeah.
0: Right. Cause like the the the, the Fremen represent because this is the one thing the movie doesn't do as much about is a religion. Religion's huge in the book. Yeah. Um, and uh, but the Fremen, their religion is Zen Sunni. So it's a merging of Zen Buddhism and Sunni Islam.
1: That's so cool. I, I love that they're called Zen Sunni. That's hilarious. Um, and uh, that's and Gurney a...
0: and Gurney is like a devout. He's a devout, um, I can't remember what they, uh, what is the, 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 I don't remember, but he reads frequently from something called the Orange Catholic Bible.
1: Orange Catholic the, Bible?
0: The Orange Catholic Bible is like the standard text of the Imperium. And it's like, uh, it's the Bible, but it's like merged with like elements from other religions.
1: I need to read this like, book. I swear to God. Dude, dude
0: the appendices, <laughs> the appendices of Dune are great because it goes to this whole thing about how like all the leaders of the world's religions converge back on earth at some point in history on some island, and they all just basically hashed it out of like, all right, let's try to create like one unifying religion. And they emerge with the the Orange Catholic Bible. But then they realized people still wanted their own like unique expressions. They didn't want it all collapse into one thing. And so there was like revolt. Right. And so that's why there's still different religion, but some religions paired off to each other. And so the Zen and the Sunni like Zen Buddhists and Sunni Muslims like merge together and but yeah the but like the standard text of the Imperium is called the Orange Catholic Bible and that's what Gurney Halleck is quoting all the time in Hmm. like all those like poetic asides that Josh Brolin is giving yeah those are verses from the Orange Catholic Bible
1: interesting that's cool Um, yeah how do you feel about Josh Brolin as Gurney I know you said he liked Patrick Stewart more well, just by
0: I like Patrick Stewart, I
1: mean, just by default. But
0: um, no, I think he's all right because he's, you know, in the book, he's described as this gruff. I mean, the one thing is, is he is a key aspect of his character in the book is that he is a troubadour warrior. Okay. He he plays an instrument called a ballast set and he s- composes songs. And that's why Timothy Shal- or sorry, Paul Atreides says to him when there, he's like, can we just have a song gurney? But like that's why that line is there in the movie, because yeah. that's what Gurney does. He plays music for Paul um, in addition to teaching him how to fight. But because Duncan, Duncan, Idaho is his primary fighting coach. But Gurney is like this old gruff. He's he's religiously conservative. He's, he's you know he's he's conservative to the traditions of court life and all of that. And in the book, there's this whole thing about how he's not entirely. His fate is left open to interpretation in the movie, by the way, um, or left open to its conclusion because you don't actually see what happens to him in the book. So I guess the sequel. So spoilers, JP, even okay. though you've seen 84 Lynch. But um, Gurney Gurney survives the the Harkonnen assault. Yeah. And he sort of winds up being like a mole. With the Harkonnens a little bit, but uh, he's convinced that Jessica was the one who betrayed the Atreides family. Um, Interesting. So, um, but that's all, but it's all part of his like traditionalism. And yeah. so I mentioned that because I think Josh Brolin is great as a person who embodies that kind of, you know, the fact that he's reading from the Orange Catholic Bible when they're on the ships before they come walking out. And he quotes the verses here and there. And, you know, you get the sense that he's had he had probably the relationship with Duke Leto that Duncan had with Paul. Yeah. Cause you have that great character moment with the two of them right before they're like told to go inside. Cause it's getting too hot. And it says like, he's and, um, and, and, uh, Duncan and, and uh, Duke Leto says, um, what is it they say about this place? Gurney. And he says that to, that to bathe, you scrub your ass with sand. Um, yeah. just a great line, not in the <laughs> book, just a great line. That's awesome.
1: Um, so yeah, uh, let's get more to these characters. Uh, Duke Leto, played by Oscar Isaac, who I thought was really great, really great oh, so role for handsome. him. I love it when so when handsome. they give Oscar Isaac like these big, these big roles, like these. I don't mean like mm-hmm. like important roles, but like where he plays big.
0: Well, and it it was fun to watch him in this role because, you, you know, he's not a young man. No. Uh, but. There's something about Poe Dameron that makes me think he's younger.
1: I know there is that Oscar Isaac is so strange to me because there are times yeah. where I'm like he could be like 25, and there are times like right. oh no he's like 60. <laughs> like <laughs> he's a yeah. weird chameleon in that way, dude.
0: Yeah, and so his his I, his Duke Leto is great,
1: and I and, and I mean really really great. And I was really I think the what stuck out to me and I that I knew would be an important scene is when when uh, Leto and and Paul and uh, uh, Gurney and I think uh, the, the doctor.
0: Yeah. Um, um, which which doctor? doctor Kynes?
1: Uh, the, the, the one who's with the Fremen who's like teaching them about stillsuits and stuff. Yeah, Leah Kynes. Yeah. So they, which they, which Ginger by the way, right? She's a black woman. Right, which movie, I think yeah. is
0: great. Yeah.
1: Um, and so they, they go out into the desert and they see that one. Construction site, or I guess sorry, like one that one mine, a one the spice, spice,
0: the spice processor, or, sp- or spice harvester.
1: Right. That's an important scene because it stuck out to me when I watched the 1984 version. Because in that one, it was like, I love how like they knew there was in danger. The sandworms come and come, they're going to like eat the thing, right? And everyone who's yep. working there, and Duke Leeto was like, I'm not leaving without them. Mm-hmm. Like that's an important scene. That's an important yeah. like moment. Great scene.
0: Right. And and it's great too. And he commands like, again, that scene. Yeah, and with his whole thing about like, damn the spice, let's get those men. Yes, because that's letting you know that he recognizes that and believes that the real the real resource on Arrakis is not spice, but it's actually the fremen.
1: Yeah, he's really dedicated to for, forging an alliance with the fremen.
0: Yeah, and he's also yeah, and and like and and it's and it seems altruistic. Yeah. You know, he, 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 you know, I think he probably, he probably realizes that if, you know, they can have a, a relationship, then access to the spice is easier Right. and they don't have to get it through, you know, the brutal means
1: of the Harkonnens. Yeah. Right. Um, um but, but yeah, uh, he's, yeah, yeah. Oscar has it great, but as the story kind of goes along, I think it be, it's kind of interesting, you know, once, once the Hark, the Hark- okay. So let's get to the Harkonnens. Okay. Yeah. Um, which I feel like.
0: Job of the Hutt was based on this guy.
1: Was he? That makes sense. Um, the Baron Harkonnen, sort of like the main villain. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a little disappointed in his portrayal in this movie. Because, you know, the movie itself, it's already so understated. Right. And I feel like this family, I think what, what Lynch did in the 1984 Dune was so much more in line of like. What we're trying to accomplish with this story, with this mythology, and sort of differentiating these two houses. Now the Harkonnens are still very hedonistic; they are still very flamboyant. But like the rest of the movie, it's all very, 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 very understated. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not too distinct from like the Atreides. It's still pretty dark tone, and the acting is a bit, a bit monotonous. I guess I should say, um, he's still flying around, which is cool. I'm glad they I'm glad they stuck to that. I was afraid they weren't going to do that at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, let me just I want to talk a little bit about Baron Harkonnen because I think he's a he's a he's a fairly misunderstood character in literature. Um, you know, because you know we live in a, we live in times where I think people are much more sensitive around body image issues and all of that. And so I know there was a lot of concern early on about how they were going to depict Baron Harkonnen right. because. His, his being, his being morbid, morbidly obese is not even the right term for Baron Harkonnen. Um, His, but his girth, I don't know what to say. It is, it's a defining character of him in the book. He is described as just like, I mean, he's like, again, he's Jabba the Hutt. Like he is not the proportions of a human. He is like, he is disgusting, like sickly disease. I mean, the book almost describes him as like, as like, uh, like what, like Tetsuo or whatever the end of Akira, just like, just, <laughs> you know, yeah. just like a, an amorphous mass of a human being. Right. And on top of that, the book also has a couple of, of, of instances where he is like raping young, young male slaves. And so there's been commentary about like, Oh, he's a, a t- typical, you know, Homosexual villain type thing Um, Which I always think is such an interesting interpretation because it's like why would you think that somebody who's hedonistic and a rapist is supposed to be Representative of a gay person, but yeah I mean it's um, all just sort of
1: illustrate his appetite like he'll just he'll take anything. He consumes everything he touches. He's like capitalism
0: right right exactly exactly (laughs) so I was uh, I was reading uh, So shortly after watching the movie. I was I was flipping through my the novel and there was a that that scene when Beast Rabin shows up that's, um, that's, uh, uh Drax's character, uh, yeah, his, his large adult son, his large adult son. Uh, when they, when they're having that conversation, um, uh, actually, no, I think back it's, it's after, it's after the poison when, um, they've, they've, they've got, they've got to back. And, um, and that's when, um, Baron Harkonnen tells beast Rabin, he's like, you know, let's like, slowly trickle out our spice reserves to keep the prices, you know from going, you know for the, to, a, to control inflation or whatever and then he tells him like control involves squeezing the people not crushing them But squeezing them yeah. in the book. He goes on to say the important thing. My boy is to is to stay hungry like I do hmm. and I when I read that I thought oh, this is brilliant and I hadn't thought about the contrast between Baron Harkin and the Fremen because throughout the book, they're very clear that the Fremen are like bony, sinewy people because, you know, they don't drink a whole lot of water. Like, you know, water is so precious to them that they're thin and they make comments that like Paul and his mother are like water fat. Like that's the phrase they refer to them, that they're, you know, that they're, you know, to, you know, so the Fremen and their whole discipline is around like giving up things you know, they only take the water they need, you know, they give up water as like a a shine of a sign of respect, but like everything they do. And there's like a whole thing in the book about what their sort of mythology is about around water and that they're actually building towards something. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you get a hint of in the movie with the guy who's pouring the water around the sacred palm trees? Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, he says part of an old dream. That old dream is related back to the terraforming of the planet. Um, And so the Fremen are, keep trying to keep up that tradition. So they're giving up of themselves in service of something larger. So I mentioned that because the Fremen are staying hungry. Yeah. The Baron says stay hungry, but they mean two very different things. The Baron says stay hungry as a way to continue consuming. Whereas the Fremen are like stay hungry in service of a better vision of tomorrow rather than it's selflessness rather than selfishness. And I just said that was such an interesting contrast. And I feel like that that's why the Baron needs to be, this like horrifyingly large person. It's not to say that, Oh, fat people are evil. It's to say this particular guy is so gluttonous and gross that he is like the moral inverse of the Fremen who are, you know, noble and sacrificial. They're both staying hungry. They're both staying thirsty, but for very different means and very different ends
1: hmm. that's fascinating um i never thought of. yeah that.
0: so that's kind of why like i feel a little bit like they toned it down a little too much with peter skarsgård's or is it It's not peter skarsgård right it's it, well, um, i think
1: it's Stellan skarsgård
0: Stellan, yeah. Stellan. selling so many of those skarsgårds, yeah, a lot of skarsgård's out there <laughs> um i feel like they toned down his appearance a little too much yeah, um no, that's i kind of wanted him to be cartoonish i mean I'm not going to lie. He doesn't look to be like he would need an anti-gravity belt to get around. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like that's the the reason he has the the ability to float is because like he physically can't move without it. Right. In the book. And this, like, I guess it kind of adds he just it's just added to the fact that he's just like, why walk
1: whenever he does fly? There's a musical cue. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Denis is definitely trying to use it as a way of like, oh, this is him sort of lording over people. This is how he lords over people. Correct.
0: Yeah. And I think that adds how he adds that beautifully is with the long flowing skirt so that when he goes up, it looks like he's just like a tall person. He almost looks like a giant worm himself.
1: So it's more deserved rather than less like a gimmick. Right. Um, But sometimes we like those gimmicks, Denis. Come on. Yeah, but but give, give uh, yeah, everyone I, an inner monologue. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah, but I but you can also just because I know a little bit about like some of the concerns around the production and commentary around the story, I, I can kind of see why they went the approach they did. But I think yeah. I think Denny made it work.
1: Yeah, I think so for too for the character. I think so too. Uh, I, I, like I I think that for like my criticism, my my overall criticism is that it's like it's like too understated for a movie with so much lore and so much much mythology right. and so much. Uh, Dune is a lot. I hate to I hate to be the the use the use the lib the, the Twitter lib the lib twitter uh glossary of definitions. It was a lot. Uh but mm. and so to understate it, it's like, okay, well then you gotta like I mean you've gotta really bring the drama. Like you've really gotta do show don't tell and like you you're just kinda like making your heart over yourself a little bit. Um but at the same time, is it, it does cause us to focus more on the drama. I mean, like, no one knows what the heck. Like, the thing that struck me is that, you know, contrasting the 1984 one and the 2021 one, is like I knew who everybody was. And I knew what mm-hmm. their roles were. And I knew why it was important when someone was killed. Like, the part where, so, like, Leto is kidnapped and is, uh, or no, no, not kidnapped. Well, they, the guy betrays him. It was a thewfer. Yeah, UA. Right? UA. No, right. UA. That's UA weird. betrays them uh but he thinks he's just like he, he's going to pull a fast over Harkonnen because he's got put that that poison gas in the tooth of he's going to yeah. get his wife back but she's being tortured uh they don't really explain that up until that point right that that his wife was right. kidnapped even though it is kind of made clear i think in the in the original version and i think there is a cut scene from this one where he, where he explains that to Jessica and i think she Well he 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 suspicious. UA ex- well, UA
0: explains it to the Duke, right? As he's giving him the tooth, he's basically like, "I I did this because they have my wife." He says they've taken her apart and put her back together, right? Um, and so, yeah, he's
1: so when they take him up to the Harkonnens, and he actually does go through the uh, Lido does try to kill Harkonnen um, with the gas from the tooth, it accidentally kills his mentat. Right. But like you don't really know what the significance of that is. Like that's that sucks for the Harkonnens to lose that guy.
0: Right. And, and this one is just like
1: it's just a guy. It's just a guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, well they don't really tell you anything about the mentats. Yeah. Right. Right. Um I mean I will say that I think that this is a good example of where where Denny realizes that audiences are a little more like we're a little more savvy these days. Like Yeah we don't have to be, we don't all have to be spoon fed. We know that if we want to learn more, we can just look online and find out more. Right. Um, You know, this is hinting at the bigger world if you want to get out there and find it, um, rather than here it's all laid out in front of you. But I agree with you that there are some things from the lore of the book that I feel are a little bit necessary to understand some of the thematic things going on. And I think like the Mentats, are an important because I've seen a lot of people talking about the mentats as though they're robots, and I'm gonna be like, no, they're not. right. They are humans who have been specifically bred, to, to and and drugged, in order to expand their computational abilities in their brains. Right. They're living computers. So cool. Okay. That's a great concept. Yeah, <laughs> they've hacked human bodies to do this, and that's I mean, similar to like the Navigators Guild. Like I'm I'm, I'm shocked at the Navigators. Were not shown in this movie I was too
1: And like And like They're shown in the 1984 version To a fault Because there's oh, a yeah. whole scene Where they show the navigator Like how it works And it's like What is happening <laughs> Like there's There is no explanation This thing floating around Shooting lasers And you're like What's going on I don't know what any of this is
0: Which I will say For David Lynch His version That's a little bit nuts Because it's yeah. not In the book They're they're, <laughs> I mean they're humans the movie that, becomes the a racer
1: are... head For a little bit
0: Yeah Yeah The, the, uh, because the, because in the books, like the, again, this, the navigators, they're humans, but they have been so like hopped because they're, they're kept inside of a tube full of spice. And so they're so like, they're so like drug on, they don't resemble humans anymore. And like, I think like, I mean, they're, 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 I think their brains are bigger. Right. Um, but yeah, they're, but I don't think that they're like floating. They're not like craying like craying from,
1: (laughs) Ninja Turtles which is what Lynch makes them kind of look like Yeah, He he looks like the brain bug At the end of Starship Troopers
0: Yeah (laughs) yeah. Whereas the book gives a sense that they're A little more But I think at the same time though Was
1: that a Jadarski Thing maybe he introduced? I don't know
0: Maybe, I don't know, but they do hint at this a little bit With that weird creepy ass Man spider in the Harkonnen Like room Right yeah, um, it's like it's like a human with like four arms in like a latex gimp suit. Like so, so they hint at like they do stuff with humans that's kind of bizarre and terrifying. So like you know, maybe we'll get to see what the navigators look like in the sequel.
1: Right. So but the but the the scene I I'm, I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is like that's actually supposed to have like a, a certain amount of weight. That, right.
0: the fact that Mentat get killed. Yeah.
1: That that Mentat was killed. Uh, but you probably don't even know what I'm talking about because I'm sure. But, but, but just watching it, that just seems like just a guy, right? You know, played by the polka dot man from Suicide Squad, uh, who in the 1984 version was played by character actor Brad Dourif. Mm-hmm. And so when he dies in the movie, I was very upset. So, <laughs> um, but um, yeah. So I mean, that that's the my, that's one of my criticisms for kind of like skipping out on it a little bit. And and I think you might be right. I think Denise is probably saying like, okay, well you're all, because we, we've talked about this before, how like, we're all kind of starting just to assume, oh, you know this stuff. So we're just going to like show it. Like you, you you know how Spider-Man's parents or Spider-Man or how uncle Ben dies. We're just going to skip over it. Um, But it's like, that's not a dramatic reason. That's like a metatextual that's, it's a metatextual thing that exists. And so it's like, I think Denis is sort of like being like, okay, that's that's where we are as a culture. We'll just fine, you know.
0: Yeah, but because um, like, like that dude, because that dude dying is basically like if the Harkonnens, like if like the Harkonnens servers went down,
1: right? Yeah,
0: like this dude like has like all of their information, their memories, like all of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and but I did like that they did sort of keep it a mystery that like you don't actually know if, if the Baron was killed or not, right? And He's in the process of resurrecting him. So let's go to the Fremen. because I feel like we've put that off long enough. We've 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 hinted at them. Um, yes. But the so Fremen. like Paul and Jessica, they are able to escape the Harkonnen uh, assault. I'm just like I'm just like skimming over this entire story, but it's fine. Um, you can watch the movie. I,
0: we we haven't talked we haven't talked much about the Bene Gesserit other than their space witches that have laid out a messianic yeah pattern right um, and. I gotta say, I've developed a bit of a little, little,
1: little tiny, little little crush on Rebecca Ferguson, dude. You and like the rest of the world right now, like, it, like <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson, dude. Yeah, she's uh, she's Rebecca Ferguson. Um, check her out in those There's Mission some, Impossible movies.
0: Something about that shot with her with like the writing on her face.
1: I don't know. Yeah, she's super cool. She's great in this, by the way. She mm-hmm. is excellent, um, though. Kind of hard to believe that she's Paul's mom. I don't know.
0: Well, the, but the, the, the whole thing, I think, is that she was young Yeah, so. he had Paul. And the thing is, she's Leto's concubine, not his wife. That's true. Right, yeah. So she's just sort of like the Bene Gesserit, the way the, the, way the Bene Gesserit sort of like put their women like at, in like quarters in, in like and positions and other things like that so that they can be close to powerful people for their purposes. So there's probably a good chance that she was just sort of like. Oh, you're the Duke. Here's a concubine because, like, right. you're going to have lots of them. So here's one. But he fell in love with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think – I feel like she got pregnant fast. And that's part of, like – so she's – I think, like, the book indicates she's a young mom yeah.
1: anyway. So, um, So uh, yeah. Paul goes on an adventure with his mom. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> they're basically Burning Man. They're tripping in the desert. <laughs>
1: yeah. So they go out there into the desert and they meet the Fremen um and the fremen are so i'm like i'm fascinated I fa- i'm fascinated by these characters and i think it, it really does stem from just like i i really love like when i was a kid i always loved the tatooine scenes in star wars in the first star wars mm-hmm. and i still love they're they're my favorite scenes and i i've i've always loved the desert and i love desert people and when I got to travel to the Middle East when I was in college, that was like a dream come true for me, almost as much as like going to L.A., because I've always wanted to go to the Middle East. I've always wanted to see Bedouins and ride a camel through the desert. And I got to do all of that, and it was so cool. Um, yeah, I got
0: to see Bedouins. I never rode a camel camel, but I've seen Bedouins. Nice. That's like Jerusalem..: Yeah,
1: yeah we really. actually got.: to, uh, We actually got to meet Bedouins. They invited us uh, to their home, and they made bread for us, and we got to mm. eat with them, and it was super cool. Um, so, so like, I'm already, I, I'm, this is already like for me. Like I, I love, I don't know. I the idea of space like space Bedouins. Desert, yeah. Space Bedouins. is like such a cool concept to me. Always been since I was a little kid. So this like the idea of like these fremen with these cool suits that I may have spent like way too much time trying to figure out how like waste is processed <laughs> through them.
0: The poo is stored in the thigh pouches.
1: <laughs> it's stored in the thighs. Um, That's specifically what the book says. Yeah. Um but uh no, it's cool meeting him. And, and the leader is played by Javier Bardem. Uh, what's his name again? Stil- Stilgar. 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 Um and for people who said that like this movie is humorless, first of all, I don't think you really know the source material. <laughs> like I don't this isn't this isn't Firefly, all right? Um yeah. and the so but the part where they meet Stilgar and he spits.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then duck and I, I was like, thank you for offering your bodily moisture. I was like, that's that's so cool. I love stuff like that. Oh
0: yeah. And I love the I I will say that the book the book tends to the, the that that moment when he spits carries a bit more like ceremony and weight. Like it's a like yeah. they talk a little bit before he does it, so that kind of sends the message that he's like, I've accepted you. Um The movie makes it a little bit more like he's just doing it because he's the Duke and he's sort of like, you know, he's got to pay homage. It's more like. Stilgar spits because the Duke has earned it and everyone in the room misinterprets what happens and thinks that Stilgar is like, yeah, pissed off. Um, But but yeah, that whole thing that but I love the way that Denny films it and just the way he communicates, it's just like, I don't need to explain it too much, but you get the sense Moisture is precious to these people. And so the idea of spitting is an act of like high praise. Yeah. Um, Like there's one thing they didn't do in the at the end of the movie, like when when Paul kills the guy. Right. um, Mm -hmm. You you see him walk away. He's crying. Mm -hmm. And in the novel, they make a whole big deal out of that. That he would shed his eyes like the moisture from his body over this guy to them Like they don't normally mourn people's death because they preserve their water. They see it as Paul is giving this great sacrifice in honor of this guy that he's killed It's one of the reasons why they accept him into the tribe not just because he beat the guy in battle, but because they see him Demonstrating compassion and love for this guy in such a way that's only reserved, you know for like really honorable people Um, But that, yeah, that kind of mythology is awesome. Like, what would you do in a world where water is precious? Yeah. And so you've got like a guy pouring water on palm trees and he's saying, oh, each of these trees consumes five men a day, Hmm. you know? So like the idea that your water is so precious, you're measuring it in bodies, like human bodies. And and so like, yeah, that great scene with him just spitting, it's like, this is actually, you know, this to think about the. The mythology of that and what that would mean and i love that duncan who spent time in the siege is like oh yeah he this is why he's doing it duke like he's not <laughs> pulling him aside and telling him he's just using it to express like explaining to both us the audience and the duke who in that moment the duke is the audience surrogate which i think is a great cinematic thing
1: right um so and also and
0: also just still has no time for anybody to that junk's funny yeah it's great. Okay. I got
1: to go. <laughs> yeah. um, so Paul's relationship with the Fremen is interesting because he seems to be fascinated by, him, by them, but like mostly through Duncan, right? Like I, I feel like Duncan is the one he sort of looks up to the most as like.
0: Yeah, Duncan's like his big brother.
1: Basically. Yeah. And so the fact that like Duncan likes them so much and is so fascinating with them, trying to learn from them, like he kind of latches onto the Fremen through through him, in a way, right?
0: Yeah, that, and through his dad, because his
1: dad is—the yeah,
0: the Duke has also figured out that
1: they're a resource. And I, you know you get the sense that
0: he's figured out there's more Fremen on the planet than the Harkonnens. No.
1: Yeah. How do you feel that, like, throughout the book, they're already, like, calling him, like, the Chosen One? Like, they're already— like, it, it, they, they've already sort of accepted, like, or, or they're more sensitive they Oh, the fact that that they're they calling
0: can't... him, like, the Kwisatz Haderach as he, like, walks off the ship?
1: Yeah. In the I movie? Was... Yeah, because
0: in the book, it's not like that. No? No. Well, it's a little bit, because they make a comment, they make a comment at some point in the book where people are referring to Paul as Kwisatz Haderach, and he realizes that the Ben Benege- or Jessica... Realizes that the ben have have been on Ar- um, Arrakis and working among the people spreading Mythologies among the people to get them prepared for the idea of a
1: messiah That's right because they have their own men and Jezre hanging out with them, right their own Reverend mother the the Fremen No, they don't they right? do
0: know them though.
1: I thought they had one like or the, and the do 1984 one, they do <laughs>
0: Yeah, they no. Jessica becomes one for them. Okay. I don't Hopefully. think there's one in the book. I have to read it again, but um But they um, they they know, you know, they refer to them as the women of the weirding way. Right. Yeah. Um, Yes, of course. Yes. And um, which is great. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so in the yeah, so the fact that he's like walking off the ship and they're already calling him Messiah is a little like sudden. It's It's a bit different. I like I like that the book is I like the way the book does it, but I also understand why the movie does it um the way it does is again because it's it, it's meant to be a subversion of the of the chosen one trope that we've seen a bit because that's what the book is actually about i also think it's um, functional
1: in a way there it's like you have so many factions in this story you can't afford yeah. to have them go through like eight different realizations right like right, this right, is this gonna right, right, right. do it all at once <laughs> yeah
0: well and um and uh yeah because like the little encounters that he has like with leah when she like makes the comment when Dr. Kynes makes a comment about how he knew how to put the boots on. Right. Right. And yeah. she says the foreign language. He already knows our way before he met us. You know, that stuff happens in the book. And it's the it's the thing is where the people are actually they're They're recognizing in Paul. By virtue of him just being around like, oh, he might be the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody's like planted that in their head that, Oh, the son of the Duke who's coming is your Messiah. They just sort of recognize it in Paul in his own curiosity about the Fremen and everything that maybe he is their, their, their Messiah. And so that's the part of the thought of the, and, and part of the subtext of the book is this whole converse, this whole weighing about how much, how much of any Messiah is an actual spiritual event or the product of self-fulfilling prophecy. Social engineering um, and stuff. Yeah, and like where does the, where does, and Paul actually makes, and like in the movie that Paul actually states it outright when they get on the Orenthopter after arriving, and he says, you know, like, all part of the plan. Like, he just makes this comment, laying out the idea that maybe it's not, you know, it's not an actual. Yeah. But I will say the Kwisatz Haderach and the Bene Gesserit's idea of Oh, no, 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 wait. I've been getting the terms wrong. Sorry. The Bene Gesserit have the Quisach Haderach. Okay. The, the, um, the Fremen have the Lisan Al-Gaib. Okay. Um, and they're both Messianic figures, but the Fremen Messiah is different from the Imperial Bene Gesserit idea of the Messiah. And that's where the tension in the movie is, is that the Bene Gesserit are trying to foster this very particular idea of a Messiah. But the question is is Paul that guy or is he fulfilling the messianic expectations of the fremen hmm. as a different messiah um and you know at what point are they the same at what point do they
1: diverge I think like sort of the um, point of it though is that like the, that that these these sort of mechanisms um that we create culturally whether it's through you know uh like through religion or through commerce or through whatever it's all like the same <laughs> right it's all sort of
0: well it can be i and i think it's i think it's a good commentary on the way that political systems especially imperialism will co-opt religious ideas for its own purpose right right so that basically like the had heard that the fremen have their own messianic prophecies and so they've been working with them to steer them into like it fitting with their plan rather than them laying the groundwork and making it, you know, it's yeah. but um, But yeah, the Fremen the Fremen are are, are, are Fascinating um, because they're the real I mean we don't get much of them in the movie but they're the real meat of the story because they're the people who have adapted over centuries to living in Arrakis yeah. and their whole life and their whole society is in response to the fact that this is, like, a really horrible place to live. <laughs> right. Um, and, of course, they have a god. That's Shai right. Shai halud.
1: Shai Hulud, who uh, manifests, who they believe manifests are the sandworms who live there, right? Yeah. Um, and so whoever the Messiah is, they said that he'll be controlling them, right? Is thats that... Is that...
0: Uh, I, I again I have to look at the way the, way the books do it. I know the Listen, Lynch version probably handled it separately, but
1: all I know is that we're gonna get a movie where Timothy Chalamet is drive is is riding a sandworm. Okay. Yeah dude. So prepare yourselves <laughs> for that. You gotta put I the have. thumper
0: on the ground to attract it and then use the hooks to catch it.
1: <laughs> I, I I was kind of uh surprised at how literal the gadgets were in this movie compared to like mm-hmm. the the nineteen eighty four Dune. Like, the thumper in this movie is literally a thing that thumps the ground. In 1984, it's like a stick you put in, and there's like a little beam that like flashes. It goes, doo 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 doo. Of course, the thumper is used to attract sandworms because it's rhythmic. Uh, You might remember the song Weapon of Choice by... um, um, It was the DJ... Weapon no of choice, Christopher Walken.
0: Oh, 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 oh! Uh, <laughs> Fat Boy Slim.
1: Fat Boy Slim. You might remember the song. <laughs> right. You might remember the song "Weapon of Choice" by Fat Boy Slim. The music video starring uh, Christopher, Christopher Walken. There's a lyric talking about walking with rhythm, uh, walking with rhythm, and how it tracks the worm. That's what this is from. That's what that's from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you didn't know that, did you? You two thousands kids. Who used to watch the MTV's. Well, and the fact that every fat,
0: every, and every fat boy slim. Yeah. It sounds kind of the same because they all at some point go to. (laughs) (iyorum) (sしゃい)
1: Um, uh, but, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. The sandworms. I mean, they're massive in this movie, like mm -hmm. massive. And the teeth are crystalline. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big thing too, right? The the there's a knife in this movie. It's called like the Chris knife, right? Oh, can I talk about the Chris knife? Sure, go ahead.
0: The Chris knife is such a big deal in the in the story, uh, in the novel. And there's this great, because there was a moment where when the woman when the woman unsheathes it, the the servant in you know Lady Jessica picks her because she recognizes she has a, she has a weapon on her, and she thinks the weapon is meant for her, but she pulls out the knife and she shows it to her. I was a little bit like I was trying to remember the book because like the thing in the book is that the Fremen have this discipline that a Chris knife is never unsheathed. Like if it's ever unsheathed, it's never put back in its sheath unless it draws blood. Hmm. So uh, that's part of their discipline. And so I was like, oh, this is, you know, that's what's going to happen in the scene. Of course, they sort of diffuse that. But then later when Paul first encounters them and they pull out their knives and Jessica, you know, you know, fights with Stilgar and, you know, that whole thing happens if you watch they all cut their arms before they put the the, the, the Chris knife away. Oh yeah. And I love that. Just, there it is. It's not explained it's shown yeah. and it's like for fans of the novel, it's like, ah, oh, there it is. Right. The Chris knife, never the Chris knife is designed to never, like it, it has to draw blood before it's sheathed. Right. Um, and you know, I like, you, and if you look later, like there's a scene, uh, where you can see like Stilgar's sleeve comes up and there's blood on his wrist from, from having done it recently, which I just, there's little details are fun about it, but, um, yeah, the, and we're, I mean, we'll be getting a lot more of the Fremen
1: in part two. I'm sure. So the big climactic part of the movie is Paul has to fight against, um, what was that guy's name? Janice? Not Janice. Donald Glover from this is America. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I can't look it up. I'm not even gonna try to research Dune right now. Um, <laughs> but he gets he, he he gets into a knife fight, which I thought was really fascinating because he's like refusing to kill the guy, right? And so and there's some debate I saw online over this. Uh, Lady Jessica cl- like clearly says in the movie like, "Oh, he's never taken a life before, so he's hesitating." But some people are saying, "But." You know, that important scene where Paul is dueling with uh, Gurney, mm-hmm. um, you know, the slow knife penetrates the shield. He's never had, he's never fought someone without a shield. Right. And so he's not used to like, a ki- he doesn't know how to do a killing blow, to someone who's not Ray Shield. Right.
0: Which the <laughs> Ray Shield, nice. <laughs> uh,. uh which I'm I'm actually now that you mentioned it I think that's exactly how that scene plays out in the novel.
1: Really? Okay.
0: Is the fact that it's it's his first time ever fighting without a shield.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So his his movements aren't matching the other guys. Like they're they're it's yeah. like two different speeds going on. Right. So he's kind of like handicapped in a way. But he also has to win because of I mean, you know, it's, it's who he is, right? I mean, is that like it, it, what, is, is there more subtext to this scene cuz this isn't in the 1984 version. Oh it isn't. No, that's no, not. No. Yeah, in the uh
0: yeah, he um th- 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 this plays out as I can recall almost identically to what happens in the novel okay. is that um yeah, this guy because Stilgar got bested by Jessica, he he wants you know there there's sort of like the Klingons in that if the leader has shown weakness then right. the next in line can make a, pl- a, pl- a play for the lead- for the leadership. And so um and so, yeah, so, and it's meant to be foreshadowing to Paul's fight with Fayette at the end of the book.
1: Right. See, in the um, 1984 version, he does have the fight for Fayette, but, but he doesn't fight this guy. They, they have the part where she does the weirding way, and he's like, oh, teach us this. And it just goes straight into that. There's no fight
0: that leads oh, into it. Yeah, this is how Paul gets into This is how he, because by, by when, in, one, by the rules of, of that tribe of, of Fremen, this is how he, this is how he gets into the um, into the tribe, okay. but that fight is important because this guy is like a high up, and I'm trying to think—he might even be Chani's
1: uncle. Really? Um. Who we haven't he talked about like, it all, by the way, Chani.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, she's barely in the movie, yeah. but um, but but um, Paul beating this guy is what makes him accepted as a fremen, and on top of that, he like I said in, you know in the in the novel him shedding tears over this guy really ingratiates him to the Fremen really? and and as a result he basically takes that guy's place and becomes Stilgar's second in command interesting um and um if I not if I if I remember correctly too he's like allowed to have the guy's wife hmm. and he declines um but you know, but he, but he's afforded a lot of like kind of luxuries. Um, you'll probably see that in the sequel. Cause like he's entitled to coffee service. It's one of the things I love in the books is that the Fremen drink coffee. <laughs> cool. And coffee is a precious thing for them, but it's laced with spice. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, but yeah, know it's, it's actually, it's, that's the turning point in the novel is that fight. It's when basically Paul stops being a boy and becomes a man.
1: Yeah, it's I thought it was I, th- I thought it was a great scene. The guy who plays that character, like the his intensity yeah. was like palpable. Um I mean he really sold that fight. Dude, he's in the movie for like
0: t- like for like five minutes, tops, but he's like so memorable.
1: Yeah. I mean just I just remember him like yelling at Paul for him mm-hmm. to like, keep fighting. Like yeah. it was like stirring, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for a scene that's not even really like heavily the choreography is not like showy you know which I'm, I'm, right. I'm kind of glad they didn't do that um, but that was really great and then you have the character Chani who's not that present in the movie she, she shows up in dream sequences um, who kind of becomes Paul's love interest right
0: uh, One of my favorite reviews that I saw in Letterboxd for this movie, all it said was, like, like Paul, I, too, dream about Zendaya.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is it Zendaya uh, or Zendaya? I don't
0: know. I I never heard anyone pronounce it.
1: Uh, Let us know in the comments. Correct us. uh, Cancel Uh, us if you have to. We'll do because yeah, I think
0: I say I pronounce it like Zendaya because of like Mayan, like the Mayans, right?
1: Okay, anyway. But, Zendaya plays Chani MJ, was, right? Who uh, and Chani was played by Sean Young in the 1984 version. Sean Young, <laughs> she oh, you
0: mean bat, you mean Catwoman?
1: Yeah, um, uh, Finkel and Einhorn, uh, she she plays, she's in a, a movie coming out soon, Chuck. I don't know if you knew about this, no. Um
0: did she really play Chani? She didn't play Erlon.
1: She played Chani. Who
0: plays Who plays Princess Erlon in 1984? I, don't, or I don't remember, dude. Oh, okay.
1: But uh <laughs> uh so our our old friends at the uh the asylum. <laughs> oh, lovely. Uh the asylum as you know is uh sort of famous for their mockbusters. They make sort of the cheap Knockoff yeah. movies of big blockbusters, like
0: Sharktopus and all that kind of stuff.
1: Uh, Transmorphers. Uh, oh right, 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 right. The Terminators.
0: Atlantic Rim.
1: Uh, yeah, Atlantic Rim. A uh, Sunday School Musical. Um, I believe Predator versus Alien. <laughs> I think no. is or something like that. Uh, anyway, they have a new movie coming out called Planet Dune. Oh no! Starring Sean Young. We have to watch it. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's just like a Jaws kind of situation. Like a bunch of space people go to a planet and like there's a sandworm and it's like stalking them. Oh, so basically like pitch black. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's another movie that owes a lot to Dune, I think. Um <laughs>
1: But yeah. yeah, Chani is I mean, I guess she becomes a more important character, right? Like she's
0: She, she becomes a very important character yeah. because she is Paul's love interest and um and uh, among other things, um becomes his concubine. Um spoiler. But um um yeah, he, she's, she's 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 a major major character um in the book and yeah, like it's you know, it it, it helps him Kind of, kind of gives, kind of gives a, you know, a bit of an anchor to him as a fremen and how he sees himself as a fremen eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's much more foreshadowing, and I know a lot of people feel like they were, they were shortchanged on, on yeah. her in this movie. Um, and that's, I mean, that's fair. That's a fair, that's a fair criticism. But,
1: she will a huge role in the second know,
0: one. She have a huge role in the second one.
1: Yeah. Um, What's funny is the 1984 version. It is sort of this it actually kind of suffers the same thing where you see her in all, like all these dream sequences throughout the movie and then you finally meet her. But then like it's towards, we're we're getting to the last act. We have to tell the rest of the story right now. And so they go from like, Oh, I'm Chani to like, we're like madly in love with each other now. Like just (laughs) no development whatsoever. Like just the next scene, they're already together. Like, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, mean, I guess that's, that's the movie. We just talked about the whole movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, I, well, a couple of things to talk about, I think, I, you know, I think two that are really worth bringing up is both cinematography and production design.
1: Yeah, can I say that uh, the Thopters really steal on the show?
0: The ornithopters are awesome. I love the yeah. Um And I remember when I was reading about them, I was like, they're using this word so much that, like, is this a thing? So I looked it up, and sure enough, ornithopters are a thing. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci is credited with like inventing them. Really? Um, because it's it's a it's a it's 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 basically any kind of flying um, device that uses flapping like a bird. Okay. So some of the some of the artists who have drawn ornithopters have really drawn from like bird imagery or like da Vinci type you know bat wing looking things. Um, if I if I if I'm not mistaken, the ornithopter toy from the Dune action figure line later became a Batman toy. Hmm. Um, but, um, just to add to the bad thing, but the, um, but I love that the movie makes them like dragonflies.
1: Yeah, I do too.
0: I think that's really cool.
1: I love the way they move the way they start, They kind of slowly, like you could see the, the wing pattern mm-hmm. when it starts out and then it gets fast. I think that's cool. Um, but yeah, I I think that I think the Thopters are are sort of stealing all the scenes from it. I think we have like a new like a new DeLorean, like a new X Wing, like a mm-hmm. you know, like a a, a vehicle that we're all kind of nuts over that I think it was pretty cool. It's and iconic, I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, um yeah, the Orient Thopters are great. Oh my gosh, how about the how about the starship? Oh yeah. The giant, like the the the, the it looks like Where's my? Oh, I, I ate my chips. It looks. It looks kind of like a, uh, you know, like a like a like a corn chip. You know, those like <laughs> tube.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, uh, just. I mean, just the production design is is, like super. I mean, it's massive. It's huge. Like it, it's it's overwhelming. It's almost too big. Like I don't yeah. think there's a camera big enough to capture everything that they actually put into this movie.
0: Yeah, you know, and and like the architecture and like costuming design, all this. Like what I love about it is one it somehow it looks like what i imagined everything to look like okay when i read the book um the other thing is other than the ornithopters because i did not i did not imagine them as being dragonflies and i think that was a cool cool change um but the um but like the way that like the architecture of different buildings the way it looks like it definitely draws inspiration from like the late like the late sixties seventies mm-hmm. a little bit with like the rounded corners and some of the detailing that it's like they took cues from the time in which the book was written okay, yeah, yeah. to kind of add something to it, which I thought was just a brilliant little, little touch. Right. Um, and, uh, and the still suits kind of look a little bit like they, they owe something to Lynch's movie. Yeah. There's a, a wink, there's a wink to Lynch's movie in their design. I think a little bit, what I think is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but like with but the other thing for me is like cinematography. I mean my gosh, I love the way that that denny lets stuff be. He, he shows not he he shows and doesn't tell. Yes. A lot. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um I think one of the most effective uses of that is with the shield with the shields.
1: Right. Yeah, he, I, I like the way he uses color to sort of signify what those shields are doing, like blue and red. Well,
0: and like when 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 Paul puts it on he tests it. Like he like oh, when neither. he like when he like when he basically like tunes it up right he like hits it with his knife until it like and that gives you a clue of how it works and then when he and gurney fight you know the mechanics of it without anyone having to explain here's a shield here's how it works here's what it does it's just like
1: it's there and that's that's and you see that it's a
0: bracelet on his wrist and so then later when the little mosquito thing shows up and he looks over and you see the bracelet sitting on the table you're like oh he doesn't have a shield yeah like, I just, that's the kind of stuff that I think is so great that Denny did with it is that he used the camera to communicate.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, David Ehrlich, a critic I follow, he didn't like this movie at all. Hmm. He thought it was a disaster. Interesting. Uh, uh, but, I mean, that's, that's Ehrlich. Uh, but, like, he says that The Shield took away the stakes that are presented in the movie. I'm like, no way. Like, it, it created stakes. Like, the fact that he doesn't have it at the end is, like, the whole point that they're trying to communicate. That, like, he has to learn how to operate without the things that bring him, like, comfort that he's used to. And, like, he has to adapt to an entirely, entirely new culture. Right.
0: Um, and then also the use of the shield adds to what happens when, Duke, when the Duke of Tip I dart. Oh, yeah. Because like you see how it, 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 without that, like if he just got shot with a dart, oh he got shot with a dart, but the fact that he has the shield on and the thing is clearly like vibrating its way through the shield, you kind of, you get the sense of terror mm-hmm. that he's experiencing that this thing that has given him comfort is now failing him.
1: Right, and it's such a misguided critique in my opinion because he, he was saying that like, oh officially, I think he's trying to make the argument that like, if a shield can be penetrated, where are the stakes, you know? Um, but it's like I don't know, it adds more drama if you ask me more suspense mm-hmm. um yeah, which is so funny because he's always complaining about how like heroes never die in superhero movies, and I'm like bro, like this is <laughs> we should be lapping this up, man, um but you know I, I kind of want to go out on this like this i I've seen so much criticism about it for being humorless and colorless, and I'm like, yeah, I can agree that it's a it's it's a it's a little bit understated for my taste like a little too much here where it's a little bit to its detriment um but like like i said this is not firefly <laughs> like this is not i mean I, it maybe this is it, a guardian of the galaxy and i and i know like the letterbox crowd they've all watched J- jodarski's dune documentaries like yeah they they've seen what could have been we all have we see we've seen that doc guys i know uh but let it go it's not going to happen <laughs> like and that's the whole point of that documentary. That's that's It's a failure. It's not going to happen. But like that, that's what this is. Like this is not um, – someone had tweeted I thought it was really interesting about how it's like for so many years critics were adapting to and accepting the overabundance of silliness in sci-fi and defending it. Like really going to bat and really defending silliness and tongue-in-cheek humor um and that 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 was like what nerd culture became it's like right. the nerdy stuff but also we could be funny about it and like along comes something that's like super serious and is also very nerdy but without being tongue-in-cheek about it without right. being uh cracking wise all the time without joss whedon i should say i mm-hmm. guess and yeah they're it's, like it's, Ooh, this is like what we were trying to avoid like or, or like they don't know how to process it now.
0: Right. Well it's I think it comes with the the pattern that we've had to you know, we've watched through our lifetimes, JP, of how, you know, we've we've always we've always felt the pressure we've sort of have to apologize for nerd culture. Right. You know? And and so it's like it's kind of one of the reasons why I prefer the twenty fourteen Godzilla to like <laughs> Godzilla vs. Kong. Yeah. Is because garrett edwards isn't trying to make any apologies for making a movie about a giant monster like mm-hmm. there's no joke like oh look how ridiculous this giant monster is right like right, yeah, yeah. it's you know it's it's just it's like, like we have a giant monster and this is just what we're going to deal with this is yeah. this is lifestyle um and so like yeah the fact that we've had to we've you know there's been this attempt to try to make nerd stuff palatable to the normies
1: right which is i think wh- how it was able to permeate culture was because we took it with like this lubricant like, <laughs> that was the the, the silliness that like we can laugh at it while we enjoy it.
0: Yeah, like that reminds me of my friend Willie and I in fifth grade, how we would both make fun of Power Rangers all the time and be like, yeah, we don't watch Power Rangers, but there's no way. We we totally both watch Power Rangers, which couldn't admit it to each other that we watched Power Rangers. And so we'd make jokes about Power Rangers, but yeah. the jokes we made were obviously from the place that we had been watching it and we're like really gripped by right. the Green Ranger saga. So I, I, that's the way I feel like a lot of our society is like, hey, yeah. It's silly, right? Like they've got they got laser swords and they and they can fly through space. Isn't that ridiculous? That's ridiculous, right? Rather than being like they worship a sandworm, and that's
1: just what they do, right, right, right. And you know, I, I feel like if if and I mean no disrespect to Christopher Nolan, I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. Um, not really enjoying his work as of late. Uh, Dunkirk was pretty good. But I feel like if we had a whole lot of explaining um, and uh, injection of humor, this would have become a Christopher Nolan movie. This would have become like a Christopher Nolan's Dune. And if you've right. been following his career, like I, I, I followed it very closely, when you get to Dark Knight Rises, it's like all the things you liked about him are gone. And mm-hmm. Dark Knight Rises is, like, a perfect example of, like, trying to blend, like, okay, we're going to take this seriously with, like, ooh, the wackiness of nerd culture. Because yeah. there's so much humor in Dark Knight Rises and none of it lands. And there's <laughs> so much. And the man feels like he needs to explain every single dumb thing. Right. Like, why would Catwoman have high heels? Well, because the high heels is, is a knife. It's a blade. It she stabs people with it. I'm like, come on, man. Use some imagination. Just have right. Catwoman wear high heels. Yeah. Um, so like, no. That's like
0: that. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of like Bryce Dallas Howard's response to people being like, you know, criticizing her character for wearing high heels in Jurassic Park or in Jurassic World. Yeah. And they're like, you can't run, or you break your ankle. Like, trying to make this whole gender <laughs> thing, and she's just like, "Look, I play a character who can run in high heels."
1: Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, Ca- Catwoman's like such a great deconstruction of like why I stopped loving Christopher Nolan because it's like, Catwoman couldn't have. Ha- couldn't have cat ears it had to be like her goggles that just happened to look like ears like well what's what what gets me about Catwoman in at dark knight rises
0: is we go through all of this like explanation of like okay these goggles that flip up that resemble cat ears and we have like all this stuff like we think through the technical aspects of what makes her sort of like you know cat-like and you know right. whatever but then right so she's this expert thief criminal but then we're not going to have her wearing a cowl so that she can shed her hair everywhere and leave evidence of who she is for them to easily catch her.
1: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. let's. We're going to make her closely resemble the uh, – uh, the Eartha Kitt version. Yeah, the Eartha Kitt version of Catwoman and not like all of like the great other iconic – yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I'm just saying like I feel like a lot of people – their only sort of reference now for serious science fiction, for big serious science fiction blockbusters is Christopher Nolan. I think it sh- it's shown how narrow it's become. Right. And for someone to come along and like take the source material seriously, show, don't tell, and deliver a great film, it's like, it was, I think it was just like too jarring for some people.
0: Right, well, and the thing is, is Christopher, Nolan, Christopher Nolan does what's called hard sci-fi, yeah. and Dune is what's called soft sci-fi. Um, do you know the differences?
1: Not really. I,
0: I a little bit, but hmm. why don't you tell audience? our audience? Yeah, um, like oh yeah, I totally know, but our audience doesn't. So you, don't. Know. <laughs> um So hard sci-fi is sci-fi that focuses on the science and the technology of the future. Okay. So like star trek is a kind of example of hard sci-fi because they're you know they're thinking through warp technology and even though they're using fantastical means to do it they're explaining the mechanics and part of what makes star trek star trek is the trek no babble okay right it's hard sci-fi it's about the technology 2001 a space odyssey is hard sci-fi because it's you know you've got like the pan am commercial space liner and like all that kind of stuff so like interstellar hard sci-fi we're talking about the technology that gets people to the stars, of the robot all this kind of stuff very practical and thought out dune is soft science fiction because even though it's dealing with a humanity's future its focus is not the technology and science about how we get there it's it's in the background right we have the ornithopters. we have the technology of the still suit that's kind of explained that's probably the most hard sci-fi thing in the entire story is the still suit um but it's the, the story is not about the technology. The story is actually closer to like a fantasy story dealing with like, you know, it's almost, it's almost closer to like a King Arthur type thing rather than, than, um, than like what you would think of in science fiction, like Star Trek or something like that. So, um, so yeah, so I think that's part of it is that like real sci-fi, you know, like, Oh, we like the, the hard sci-fi because you know, we like the technology and, all that kind of stuff, but right. Dune is not that, and and it's it's typically the case that hard science fiction is treated critically as better. Yeah, I knew that. Um, so it's it'll like, be interesting because there's it's Oscar like elevated buzz. Elevated horror. Yeah, which is like, but there okay. there's Oscar buzz already about Dune. It'd be interesting to see if something like this goes anywhere because I it's it. not it's not like what normally gets put up there, right. Because I think about, it, like, okay, Batman, right? The Dark like, again, Christopher Nolan. The Dark Knight is held up as, like, the great standard of superhero films, which I'm so kind of over the Dark Knight. But you think about it, though, like, it it is it is kind of almost po-faced in its seriousness yeah. of Batman, right? And that's been the problem, right? This is one of the reasons, I, I'll be honest, I, I like Zack Snyder's Batman way better than Nolan's Batman <laughs> because – you know, say what we will about him being like sort of roided up, macho, whatever it, that's closer to me to what Batman is like in the comics sometimes than like this dude with like a robot suit. Instead, it's just a really big dude. Right. Who does CrossFit to beat up criminals <laughs> while dressed up like a bat. Yeah. Well, um, well, think- but yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you, though, that 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 this is this is a really great movie, and that the reasons why people are, I think, why it's whatever negative reaction that it does get is rooted in the fact that it it's sort of a shock to the to the system. It's not playing by the rules of right. nerd cinema.
1: I think it's a milestone. Yeah, and I think it's something. It's not that different from, you know, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. They kind of he kind of did the same thing with that movie,
0: which I still have to see both Blade Runner movies. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts. I love, I love them both. Uh, my
0: issue, I'll just say, my issue with Blade Runner. I want to watch it, but I don't know which version to watch.
1: Final Cut. Final Cut. Okay. Just watch the Final Cut, dude. Don't worry about those okay. other ones because they're they suck. Okay. <laughs> they're not. They're not good. Okay. But don't don't do not do not watch the one with Harrison Ford's narration.
0: I don't know which one that one is. I was gonna. I was thinking like the theatrical cut, like the one that came out in theaters. But no, final cut.
1: Everyone says final cut is the one is, is okay. like the definitive because that's the one Ridley Scott got. He had all the control over it. So okay, um, and that's one everyone likes. So, I mean, I, I would I would suggest checking out the other ones if you're curious about them. You know. Hey, there's cool. that, also a movie that that's also movie that Sean Young in it. Hey, it does. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I think we've uh, we reached the end. We've talked a good almost 2 hours about Dune, which I don't know how we were going to do like an hour and a half about Dune. There's no way. Sorry. Um <laughs> I think we're justified if you ask me. We are
0: justified. It's a long it's a long book, it's a long movie. It's very dense. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's and like and I think it's one of the things why why it was smart to break this movie up into two parts, which we have to owe it. It set the precedent for that, by the way, the <laughs> recent adaptation of it, um, where it's a story that like, obviously, as we see with the Lynch version, you have to kind of put your chess pieces on the board in order to tell the story. Yeah. And so like, cause then the story really ramps up in the second half of the book, but you can't, none of it makes any sense until you've set up all this stuff up front. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's impossible to make this movie without there being a front loaded installment of, you know. You got the Dungeon Master's Guide out, and you're doing your character creation charts and all that kind of
1: stuff. So yeah, yeah, this this is the character rolling section where you roll. Yeah. You, roll you roll your characters. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah so I I don't know. I I, I think what's going to be really funny is like may, maybe I've always thought to myself that like nerd culture is coming to an end, but maybe that's not true. Maybe we're about to see like a new nerd culture. Maybe we're about to see real nerd culture
0: yeah instead of big big bang theory nerd culture yeah
1: like maybe we're gonna start like i mean who knows i mean we've got that new lord that new amazon lord of the rings coming out which i I don't know i have a bad feeling about that show i feel like it's going to be all tongue in cheek um and uh, i don't know who knows who knows what else what else is going to come down the pipeline we've got a a super serious batman coming (laughs) probably more serious than nolan's um
0: where his bat symbol.
1: Do you know the story about the bat symbol on his armor? No.
0: It's made from the gun that killed his parents. <laughs> Interesting.
1: I don't know. Um, I, I feel like we're just going to get to. We're, we're getting to a different nerd culture. And it's.
0: The real, the real test would be if we ever get a Warhammer 40K.
1: <laughs> put it past them. Uh, can you imagine a Peter Berg directed this movie? My God.
0: i kind of want to visit the parallel universe where it happened
1: yeah what if it was
0: the like movie that like made him
1: peter berg famous for battleship friday night lights and that one movie the kingdom a nice little post 9-11 piece of propaganda Uh Oh. Uh, uh, not a good director sorry sorry peter i don't know if you're a listener um I just don't like your stuff, dude. Sorry. Uh, hey,
0: okay. Yeah. I. There's a part of me that wants to watch Battleship just because, like, I want to see Liam Neeson's – because he's in that, right?
1: Uh, maybe. I guess so.
0: I don't remember. I know. And then we've also got uh, – we also got uh, um, Rihanna. Rihanna's in it? I know that. Yeah. Um, I uh, was thinking about that Taylor when I was Kitsch. playing Battleship. I was, playing, I was playing Battleship with my kids, the board game, and I was just like, how do you make a movie out of this?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and where do you get aliens? <laughs> Peter Bird came in. I'm glad you asked. Because no one's <laughs> asked me. Um, so, great. If you haven't seen Dune, check it out. HBO Max. Go see it in theaters while it's still out. Uh, and hey, you know what? Give the 1984 version a little, a little visit. I'll do it. I'll do it. do it. Just for funsies. You know? Just to, I mean, I, I think it I think it serves as like a great starting point for someone who wants to get into Dune, I'm, and I'm glad I started there because now, now I actually want to, like I want to dive in I want to, I want to dive in, read the book. Yeah, I I own it. I should I should read it. <laughs> how many chap How
0: many chapters have you gotten into it?
1: Uh, ten pages. Dude, any book.
0: I've learned you have to challenge yourself to get through the first three chapters. Once you get for the first, first three chapters, you will likely finish the book.
1: That's probably good advice.
0: Yeah. Uh, that was me with, uh, I'm, I'm trying, I've decided to, I've decided to go that, to be this guy. And that is I'm reading the star Wars high Republic novels. Okay. <sighs> Stories are good. Yeah. The writing, because there's so many characters, they have to remind me every character's first and last name about three times per page.
1: Yeah, you know that that's kind of par for the course for Star Wars novels. <laughs> not 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 terribly good. Uh, mostly just for consuming lore. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's
0: some there's some there's some legendary Jedi. I can't think of his name. I was to, I just want to keep on calling it's something light something. So I call him Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, <laughs> Okay. The, the author of the Edmund Fitzgerald song. Just, anyway,
1: Timothy Zahn it's, is probably uh, like the only good Star Wars writer. Well, know? I can
0: tell that I can tell that because this is like a big media initiative from Disney that there's clearly like guidelines that the authors have to follow because between light of the Jedi and whatever this new one's called, there are two different authors. You would have no idea. It's two different authors.
1: Yeah. <laughs> nice.
0: But right, Hey, it's uh. It's something.
1: Yeah. So check it out. Uh, we recommend it. Masters of Divinity says check it out. <laughs> um, Father Chuck, thank you so much for coming out. You're welcome. And I want to thank our listeners for listening. And join us again next week. See you real doom. I don't know. <laughs> Desert power. Desert power. Good journey. Good journey. we